welcome to Right Hearted with me, Stuart Wakefield. I am thrilled to have best-selling, award-winning author, Susan Swope with me. Susan, hi. Hi, Stuart. So nice to see you. And you. I'm really excited that you're able to join us because you are an incredibly busy woman um, and you have many, many books. Um, and before we get into that, though, I'm really interested to, to understand how you started writing. How I started writing. Uh, we're talking about all the way back to the beginning started writing. Is that what you're asking? Okay. Well, pretty much when I was about six years old, I learned to read, which is how my mother bribed me to go to first grade. I was afraid to go and be there all day without her, but she said, they'll teach you to read. And I got very excited about that. So they sent me to school and I learned to read. And about the same time I learned to read, they taught me how to write. I mean, with a pencil, right? Okay. And by second grade, I was writing stories in my notebooks at school. And they were all horrible and terrible. But I was reading all the time. And I was reading stuff and just going, I think I can do this. Okay. Which a lot of people probably get that idea very oh, really? early on in their life. A lot of them never do anything with it. But I did. I was filling notebooks. And I can remember being in junior high school. That's how old I am. We called it junior high school. Okay. And I can remember being in um, a home ec class, which I hated. And I remember every day I would sit there and I would go to my section that has home ec in my notebook. Right. And I would literally write a romance novel in the notebook while I was listening to my teacher trying to sound or trying to seem as though I was very studious. Okay. And she must have thought I was because I was taking notes, it seemed, on everything. <laughs> what she didn't know is I was writing a romance novel, but, you know, it was none of her business. So there we are. And I started writing my first novel, again, by hand in a notebook, um, when I was 12. Okay. And, um, and for a period of time there, after I got my first typewriter, and don't even think about laughing at that, Stuart. No, no. I did. I had, I had a manual typewriter, which is frightening when you think about it. Um, I would come home after school every day, put a sheet of paper in the rollers and start to type something new every day. And so I had bits and pieces of stories lying around for literally years. I still have some of them, actually, that I've held on to. Okay. So that's literally how I started writing. Is okay. that helpful? Yeah, yeah, that's fantastic. I mean, I do remember typewriters. Um, I'll be 50 in two months. So I was kind of... You're a baby. Oh, yeah, I was kind of on, just on that class. But... Um, so you said that, that, I mean, you obviously, you know, you love reading. Um, I'm just interested. I'm, I'm assuming your first romance novel didn't see the light of day. Um, do you remember roughly what the kind of setup is? What it, um, basically it was, I can remember that the title, don't laugh. I can remember that the title of the story was called Priscilla of Boston. And the reason I remember this is because Priscilla of Boston happened to be the designer who designed Trisha Nixon's wedding dress. And nobody but me would remember this, I promise you. But I actually called that Priscilla of Boston. And it was about a woman going on a journey, a young woman who meets this gorgeous guy naturally on the journey. And I don't think the journey ever ended. They just kept on and on and on in the train. And, um, and I never really knew what to do with it. And to this day in my writing, I get to the middle of a book and I have no idea what to do with it. And I just throw things and get furious and, and that kind of thing. And it, it's never changed, you know, 50 years down the road in writing. And that part has never changed. So I don't know what to do. But you have finished many, many books. 
How, I how have, did you get over that, that issue? Um, part of it, it helped a lot because part of it involved something very simple like writing nonfiction. Okay. When you're writing nonfiction, you have a story whether you like the story or not. So you have a responsibility to tell the story as it goes. And if you're dealing with a historical subject, I wrote a book about the history of Alcatraz Island. Okay. So I had a historical subject to write about. And I had, you know, the discovery of the island, the naming of the island. I had what it was before. I had when it became a prison. I had it when the Indians occupied it. Uh, so that was the story. Um, and then when I was, I was writing a bunch of books under contract when I was much younger. Okay. And very often what they would do is they would give me kind of an outline of which, of how they wanted the story to go. My job was just to fill it in. Right. And I could do that. It's like, okay, in this chapter, such and such happens. And in the next chapter, such and such happens. Right. And my job was just to make it seem credible. Okay. And I could do that. That was okay. It was when I had to figure it out myself that it made me insane. Okay. You know, and it still does all these years later. Yeah, it, it's interesting. So um, the episode that's just going to come out before yours, I've had a very similar conversation um, with, but this is slightly different author, really loved the middle of a novel and basically didn't want to get to the end. They were quite happy paddling around in the early middle. Um, but you've obviously, you just mentioned writing to contract. So let's back up a bit. You've done your junior high. You've been writing there. What, what happened in the gap between you writing for yourself and then writing professionally? Ah, um, I had no intention of being a writer at all, Okay, actually. Uh, I was actually continuing to write all through my teen years. I was by that time writing short stories and stuff. You got a lot of assignments in school to write. And quite often I would come up with something on an assignment that was considered really amazing. And they would just, they loved it. But uh, I always figured I'd be one of those people who would, you know, be a brilliant award-winning actress. And on the side I would write, okay. you know. Um, I knew I was never really going to give up writing, but I never really thought about it. And then I can remember, because I was going to be an actress, I was going to be an actress, I was going to be an actress. Until one night, I had been playing the piano since I was about seven. Right. And I would very often just walk over to the piano and sit and just play for myself. And I was playing one night and I was playing Cole Porter's Begin the Begin, which you may or may not know, but it's a very old song, a classic, and it's a great song. However... It's not your standard 32 bar song, it's long, okay? And as I started to play this, at the beginning I'm thinking about my a career as an actress. And by the end of it, I understood without any consciousness, conscious you know, um, change in my mind that that was not what was gonna happen. And I walked into the kitchen where my mother was doing the dishes. Okay. And I said, mom, I'm not gonna be an actress, I'm gonna be a writer. And she said, great, dry the dishes. And that was that. So, and I never thought about it. It was, I was uh, about 16, I think at the time. And so what happened was is that I was well before the process of actually um, starting to apply for college. So when I applied for college, I had another interesting situation, which was Back in the old days, the very old days, you need to take yourself way back here, Stuart. Back in the old days, when you went to work, you went out to work. This is naturally pre-COVID. This is pre a lot of things, right? 
but you went out to work. And I thought, okay, how can I do a job where I go out to work and I still am able to write? And I realized that the only job that I knew of where you could go out to work and get paid to write was journalism. Now, I should explain that I hated the news. I had no interest in it, paid as little attention as I possibly could. I, have, I pay a lot more attention these days, but I wasn't paying much attention then. And I thought, okay, well, I'll tell you what, I'm going to hold my nose and I'm going to go to journalism school because I can't figure out a way to get a paycheck without actually going out to work. You know, And um, I had no imagination and didn't understand that writers, most of them stayed home and wrote. You know, no clue. But anyway, um, I went to journalism school. This was just after Watergate, so lots of people were going to journalism school, obviously. Um, and I got my degree in broadcast journalism. And I naturally immediately made a left-hand turn and went into show business. And my first job out of school was working for an American talk show, which I don't know whether you would actually know. Um, it was quite famous, but I don't know if you would know it, The Merv Griffin Show. And what's interesting about the entertainment business, especially when you're very young, is that they have a way of influencing you. I'm sure you know this. Absolutely. And what happens is, is that they start to make it clear to you that the only kind of writing that has any value at all is screenwriting. Yes. There's no other kind that exists. There's nothing else that's important. Fortunately for me, I had taken a lot of cinema classes at college. Very pleased about that. And a couple of them, especially that were great screenwriting classes, story analysis classes, things like that which is wonderful yeah. because you get the bare bones of the story right there in front of you. And that's all you really need to deal with. Yeah. However, that's not really what I wanted to write. Okay. And yeah. it's not what I had grown up reading. It's not what I had grown up loving. That stuff just didn't matter to me. I did it though for about 10 years okay. and um, never, yeah, did screenwriting, not, not to the point where I actually got a film produced or anything cool. like that. Yeah. I did write an informational film from McGraw Hill, who was doing uh, informational films at the time, okay. but nothing else that had any particular value. And so um, I wrote some screenplays. I was a little discouraged when I lost my job, my main job that I had for a long time. I decided it was time to start writing. Right. And I finally found an editor in New York, God bless him, who was kind enough to say to me, if you want to write these kinds of books, you know, kids, children's books and romance novels and all this other kind of thing, you need to talk to a book producer. Okay. And he told me who I needed to speak to. God bless him. I'll never forget him. Lovely guy, Joe Ballantyne. Never forget him. Anyway, point is, is that he sent me over to a company that did book producing, which is basically they would have contracts with larger publishers who would want them to do a series about this, that, or the other thing. Oh, the book producers okay. would find the writers, they mm. would develop the stories, they would put the whole thing together, they would then present it to the publisher, and the publisher would pay him for it. That's right. pretty much it. So um, I got there, and I spoke to this woman, Kate, never forget her either, who was very nice, and she said, listen, um, we've got a, a girls' book series that we're doing, okay. and we've done five books out of the six. We have the sixth book left. And it's about girls who are training for dressage events in the Olympics. And I said, listen, I ride horseback all the time. I've been in jockey school. I you know, love that stuff. I know the vocabulary. She said, I'll tell you what, why don't you write a couple of sample chapters? And I did. Okay. And uh, she called me and she said, we really like what you did, but I got to ask you the important question. Uh, we are under terrible deadline pressure here. Okay. Can you get the entire text of the book to us in a month? 
And how I had long never been expecting. Like how long? Sorry, how what? many words were they expecting? Oh, we're we're talking about probably twenty thousand words, right? Oh, okay. Can you do it in a month? And I had never written a completed book before. I had never had to deal with this kind of thing before. So I did what anybody would do. I said, <laughs> no problem. Absolutely. <laughs> and I got the contract and I wrote the book, panting all the way to the end. Okay. And I got it in there and they liked it. Meanwhile, I had also applied to another editor in the same house who was doing a series of biographies of famous people. Yeah, and absolutely. the biographies he was dealing with specifically were um, a lot of American presidents and people like explorers and people who had done some really interesting stuff. Yeah. So he said, the next batch that we're doing, we have this, we have this, and we have Abraham Lincoln. And I said, great. Abraham Lincoln is great because when I was a child, I was on Candid Camera as a four-year-old. Okay. And I told the story of Abraham Lincoln and how he was killed on Candid Camera. So <laughs> I'll do that. There you go. See, your childhood does influence you. What can I tell you? So anyway, point is, is that I got that one and I did that. And after that came a biography of Amelia Earhart. And then not too far after that came a biography of Clara Barton. And I just kept writing and writing and writing because the longer I wrote, the more they paid me. Great. And I really liked that. Yeah. Yeah. And I was good at that. I also discovered, by the way, something very interesting. When you are um, a writer for hire, quite often they will have a series that has a name on it that is not your name. Right. They'll have like a pseudonym registered to the house, you know? Okay. Mm-hmm. Now, in this case, the case of the Blue Ribbon books, which is the one I came in to write, um, the pseudonym registered to the house was Chris St. John. Now, that I'm sure sounds very horsey, doesn't it? Yeah. It does. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, it was, I didn't get my name on it, but because I didn't get my name on it, I get paid more money. So, there really? we are. Yeah, I did. And, and I'm sure part of it has to do with the fact that they consider the recognition factor to have, you know, great branding possibilities for me but so there we are with with the uh biographies i got my name on them which was nice and i actually wrote one book under contract which i'm still marveling over i find this amazing this was many years later i was under contract and my agent new york negotiated something very interesting she it was a very short book it's called pardon that turkey and it was about the story of the first thanksgiving and how uh a woman actually um lobbied five different American presidents to get a national day of Thanksgiving, which is what we think of as Thanksgiving day today. Okay. Um, but the part that was interesting about it was in the negotiation, she got me the copyright. So I actually have, I own the copyright to pardon that Turkey, which I think is amazing, you know, and that's, I've never tried to do anything with it, like turn it into a musical or something, but you know, <laughs> I think it's pretty incredible. I really do. I'm very pleased. So that was a very big deal. And um, the point is, is that I wrote on and off for this particular house for a long time, and they were not great about paying you very promptly. So right. it could get very hairy yeah. after a while. But I went out looking for all this work and getting as much as I possibly could. And ultimately, I wrote 17 books for hire, which is kind of nice. In what sort of a yeah. period? Say again? In what, in what kind of period did you write those books? Oh, from the first one was 1988, okay. and I wrote those for about two or three years, and then I picked it up again around 2005, okay. and wrote another two or three, yeah. um, and and ended up one of the latest ones I did. I, I ended up getting um, 
a chance to write a um, Childhoods of Famous Americans book, which is kind of interesting. Yeah. It's still going on today. They still publish them. But the particular one that I got to do was Ray Charles. Oh. And yes, on the basis of getting that uh, that book, my agent got me another biography of Ray Child Charles. She said, hey, she already has done all the research on him. She already knows everything there is to know about him. You know, I barely cracked the first book by the time she made that deal. But she said, I got it for you anyway. So the second Ray Charles book that I wrote ended up winning a major children's book award, which I'm still very happy about. Yeah, so you it was, a, yeah, the Children's Moonbeam Book Awards, which I think debuted in 2007 or something. And mine was like the first uh, in its category to win the award. I was very pleased. God, so very nice. Achievement. And I was looking at your website and um, I mean, there are a lot of awards on your website. Very pleased about that. That's fun. <laughs> so you had this, you you know, you started out junior high writing romances. You've spent a big chunk of time writing screenplays, and then you get contracted to write loads of different, really interesting, you know, kind of books. Which which ones of them did you find the most challenging? The most what? The most challenging. Oh. Um, the most challenging ones, the most challenging ones were the ones I had to write the most quickly, right. but I learned something kind of interesting. Okay. I learned that I can write quickly, which is kind of a big deal. Yeah. Um, at one point I had a contract to write a book and I hadn't started it yet. What a surprise, right? <laughs> Cause we're all, we're writers, we're all procrastinators. We all know this, right? Yeah. And... I was working a film production job in Hollywood and my boss went away for a location scout. Okay. Lucky me. So all I had to do in the office was answer the phones, write down the messages. And when he called once a day, tell him who had called and how to reach them. That was all, nothing else. Right. I spent the entire week that he was gone writing the book. I wrote the entire book in nine days and turned it in. How long a book? And it was that one probably would have been about 40,000 words. That's it was amazing. a it was like a young adult romance novel where the end of the book is where they have their first kiss. So it's really sort of this very yeah. sweet sort of story of this developing relationship. It's really nice. And that particular one was about jockey school. I had actually gone to jockey school in California. Uh, At the time, there were only two such schools in the country, one in California, one in Pennsylvania. Okay. And so. I pitched this idea to them that I could write this story about this girl who spends a summer at jockey school and has a crush on a guy who works there. And um, they loved it. And I did it. And it was called um, Racing Hearts. I like and it turned out pretty well. Okay. And then what happened was, is a, a few years later, I got the opportunity to write another one, which uh, I pitched to them as an idea of a girl um, falling in love with her tour guide on a whitewater rafting trip. I had done a lot of whitewater rafting too. So, you know what? Took both, threw it in. And, uh, and the most perilous moment in the whole story is when they hit a rapid and she falls overboard. Okay. And it's just a matter of, can I, can I save the girl in front of me before we both get killed kind of thing? Right. And basically, yeah, the, the guy who, and I've seen, I've seen tour guides actually do this. The guy actually grabs her by the top of her, um, what is it? Her life, her okay. life jacket, right? Dunks her down and lifts her right up. 
It's absolutely an amazing thing to see. Oh, these the guys. Yes, yes, yes. He for the buoyancy pushes her down and pulls her up, and it's like wham. You know, it's amazing. So the point is, I put that in there, yeah. and that went very well. And um, and then I moved back home from Los Angeles to New York, and it took me about two weeks to get. You know how it is. You have to get your new driver's license, and you have Ooh. to do all the things you do, yeah. change your dress, yeah. all that stuff. And one morning, I woke up and I went, "Oh shoot, I have to get a job." <laughs> And that's the moment when the phone rang. Okay. And the person on the other end of the phone was an editor who had worked with me at the book packaging company I'd originally started with in okay. New York. Now I'm back in New York, right? Yeah. And she says, I've tracked you through three phone numbers. I really want you to work for me. And I said, what are you doing? And she said, I work for Western Publishing okay. and we are publishing a series of books called Girl Talk based on characters that come from a board game. And I said, oh, okay. And she said, well, we've got these writers who write all these different characters and they each write the books from different characters' point of view. Okay. But we do have this one situation where we have one writer who's now out on maternity leave. So I'd like to hire you for three books. And I went, okay. And I wrote three books for them. Now, the third one, however, was most interesting because it was about the, the girl in question, the girl that I was writing for, was a sort of a city girl okay. who loved her horoscopes and who loved the theater and wanted to be an actress and all this other kind of thing. And um, she got herself involved in a situation where she was raising a calf for the 4-H fair. Okay. Now, I know nothing about raising a calf for the 4-H fair. And I just kept putting it off and putting it off and putting it off and putting it off because I didn't know what I was going to do. Right. And I finally had three days left before this thing was due in New York. <laughs> yeah. We've all done this. I mean, please, you know that you, I know you've done it. I'm not even going to argue with you about it. I know you've done it. We all I've, do it. I've done it. I've we done all that. put it on <laughs> till you can't stand it anymore. Yeah. You hate yourself. Yeah. And I finally sat down at the computer and started working and I finished and printed out the final draft or the only draft, shall we say, of that book one hour before I got on the train to go to New York and deliver it to my editor. Three I, days later. How did you feel? I mean, did you, did you feel confident? How did I feel? Or did you feel like, I felt sick. I'm going to get found out. No, I felt absolutely ill. But I thought, you know what? This is the third one. This is the last one. So she fires me. It's not that big a deal because guess what? It's okay. Yeah. And what happened was a week later, I get a call from my editor. And she said, I just want you to know something, and it's kind of important. I said, what? She said, everybody here has read your manuscript. Everybody here loves it. They think it's the best one you've done. That's fantastic. And there we are. Yeah, that was that was just really fun. It was a nice thing to find out. It really was. Really Anyone appreciated that. Or watching, don't necessarily do what Susan does. <laughs> No, please don't wait till three days before the book is due to start writing it. But it's possible. That is the point. That is the point. Uh -huh. And so, and what what I did was, um, not knowing anything about how to train a calf at all, what I did was I had my character who also knows nothing about how to train a calf. She decided to train the calf with music. So she would sing different songs to the calf to get the calf to do different things, different little stunts, right? Okay. You know, like tapping your hoof or 
was they wanted her to do. So she would sing Petula Clark. She would sing the Beatles. And the calf would know what she wanted based on what she sang. Great. And it worked out. Yeah, I haven't read that book since I wrote it. I'm okay. probably never going to reread it again, but I'm not sorry that it turned out the way it did. So it, we just did an episode on my podcast, Talk Jam, okay. which is about writers and how much time they use to do things. Right. And one of my all-time favorite stories, this, this puts me so far in the shade, I should tell you. One of my all-time favorite stories is about a man named Walter Gibson, who wrote under the name Maxwell Grant. And under the name Maxwell Grant, he created the character of the shadow. The shadow, the, the guy who went around saving people, saving the world and all this kind of thing. Okay, this yeah. is way back. Oh, yeah. And he literally Pulp Fiction. And what was really interesting was, is that in, by October of 1938, starting in January 1938, he had written 24 50,000 word shadow novels by the end of October of 19. I mean, I, when I realized that I had to lie down with a cold cloth on my head, I was sick. I was like, you are so lazy. Why can't you do that? And I still ask myself that question. That's just, so I, I'm very fascinated by people who can do stuff like that and do it really quickly. That's amazing to me. It really is. So when you wrote a book in nine days and when you wrote the other one in three days, I mean, surely you can't go into that blind and just pants your way through it, did, or did you? I, I think I pretty much just had to turn everything off and just kind of do it. I can remember finishing one book, and I can remember a, a friend of mine called me after I finished that book, and I was picking up the phone at that point because I was picking up the phone, right. and she's asking me how I am, and I realized that I had neglected something kind of important that because this was a Monday night that she called me okay. uh, over the weekend, the clocks had changed. So we'd gone into daylight savings time and I didn't actually know it. Okay. Yeah. So it's, it's, so I think it's situation. I lost time because I didn't realize I wasn't paying attention. Right. And all I was thinking about was how do I get this chapter finished and how do I get on to the next is pretty much it. So okay. yeah, you, you really do have to just just kind of sit down and, and push it out. I mean, this is this is absolutely the essence of what something like NaNoWriMo is all about. Yeah. It's like, you know, just, just, it doesn't matter what's there. It doesn't matter. All it matters is that it's on the page. Just put it there. Yes. You'll fix it later. So, and it all works out. So those three day and nine day novels, you, you kind of story. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's really interesting. But but by this time, I mean you've written quite a lot of books. So do you think you just have that kind of visceral sense of structure and how things need to work? I'd like to hope I have a visceral sense of structure, yeah. but a lot of that has to do with years and years and years of being a story analyst and doing development edits for people and yeah. reading people's stuff and giving them notes on it. And I sometimes think I'm way better at looking at other people's work and telling them what doesn't work rather than myself. You know, Amen um, that. as a book coach, I can, <laughs> I can attest to that. We, we are all like that. We all just, Oh my God, it's brilliant. I can't take a word out or I'll ruin it. You know, yeah. no, 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 no. And, and in fact, somebody said to me once, um, how's your day going? This is around noontime. And I said, Oh, I spent all morning killing my darlings. So, you know, that's pretty much it. That's what they say. Is that you're supposed to kill all your darlings in writing. Yeah. So that's what I did. Cut, 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 cut. It's what you do. 
I have found very useful is Robert McKee's story book. And I think mm-hmm. a lot of other novelists, they find it really interesting. Do you think that screenwriting can inform long-form fiction? Oh, yeah, yeah. absolutely. In fact, I took everything I know about breaking stories into three acts and everything else yeah. and use it in setting up my fiction. Yeah. And in fact, I actually, this, this is my personal choice, but other people may want to look at it as well. I found something I really like, a program called Dabble, where you can actually not only throw your actual prose into it, yes. but you can also put all kinds of notes in there yeah. about what you want to do, what you want to change. It's an enormously great thing. And I know a lot of other people use different things yeah, like yeah. Scrivener and yeah. stuff like that. Dabble has been the thing that does it for me. And I just open my thing up, throw it in there, and then I don't have to worry about it anymore because I've got my notes. And it's just, it's wonderful because when I go back to the notes, something about the energy with which I wrote them down yeah. seems to translate to me. It's like I get them in the in the red hot form that I put them down and it's like, oh yeah, I know how to do that. And that takes you that much closer. But the, the structure part of it, the the whatever, I'm constantly working on structure, thinking about structure, you know, how do you do this? How do you do that? You know, what's your second act break, all this other kind of thing. And and that's always something that's in my mind for sure. Yes, absolutely. And then what was it like coming out of contract writing or are you still in contract writing? Uh, right now, I'm not. Okay. What's actually happened was, is a few years ago, I developed my own publishing imprint. Yes. And um, I had written a book. Now, we were talking about timing, right? We were talking about yeah. writer's timing. Yeah. Now, here's the part that's interesting. Yes, I wrote a book in three days. Yes. But I also wrote a book that took me 30 years. And no, Ooh. I'm not kidding. Okay. Yes. And the thing is, is that they can take a lot of time if you let them take a lot of time. Yes. This is a prime example. And it was um, one of those things where I finally published it after lots and lots of whatever. I published it in 2013 through a small press in North Carolina. Okay. And then decided I was going to republish it under my own imprint in 2018, which I did. Uh, took it out, re-edited it, republished it. Uh, very proud of it. Did the audiobook version, my very first audiobook last fall. It's called Stealing Fire. Fine. And it's a love story. But part of it had to do with the fact that it was so autobiographical that I had to kind of live through a lot of it before I could understand enough to write about it. And that was kind of what took me so long. Also, it was kind of a sensitive topic because it dealt with a uh, romance between a much older guy and a much younger woman. Now, she was absolutely of age, of course. But every single time I would read a, a critique of it, somebody would say, oh, that's icky. And I'd go, oh, put it away, put it away. And I had actually lived through the experience. Right. And what's fascinating is, is that um, I reread it now and I'm really, really proud of it. Um, it was one that, that I ended up finishing inadvertently at the um, first Amazon novel breakthrough to work, Amazon breakthrough novel award contest I saw this on your in 2006, I think. Yeah, yeah this, was, this was a big deal when they were trying to introduce, or they were introducing Create Space. Okay as their self-publishing arm. Right. And they decided to do it by having this contest and having a lot of novelists come in. And um, I was a quarter finalist yes. with that book. And people were reading it and going, I love this. I love the prose. This is wonderful. I love the characters, blah, 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 blah. And I had, from the time I actually filled out the form on the website to actually enter the book, 
they said, okay, thank you for filling out the form. You now have seven days to upload the entire manuscript. If you don't, it goes away and you can't enter. And I went, it's not finished. <laughs> and looking at me is, or you cannot enter. And so I went, okay, I've got seven days. And I took this book that had all these, you know, gaps in it and all kinds of stuff. I'd been writing it from the age of 26. I started it, don't you even think about laughing, on an IBM Selectric typewriter. Don't even think about laughing, Stuart, honestly. <laughs> um, this should be, it should be in a museum somewhere. Anyway, the point is I started on that, put it on an old computer, found the files later, realized there were 275 pages and it was too much to throw away. And furthermore, a very close friend of mine had told me how much she loved it. So she wanted me to finish it okay. no matter what. And so what happened was, is that I had one week to finish this book. So I cut a hundred pages. I added a hundred pages of additional prose okay. in one week yeah, yeah. and finished it and got it uploaded to the website 20 minutes before it was due. Cutting it a little close there. Dude, you live life <laughs> on the edge. I guess I do, Stuart. I don't feel like I do, but I would tell you I'm the most, you know, sort of like, you know, wrapped up little person you'd ever know. But honestly, I guess I do some of those things and they are weird. <laughs> you know, my house would be full of kittens if that's how I, if that's how I am. <laughs> that's my idea of excitement, I think. Is, yeah. Yeah. Just before the train goes. Yeah. That's pretty much it. But but I got it in and I'm so proud of it. Go ahead. Yeah, um, so tell me a bit more about if you're, if you're in print, how is that for you? The imprint was something that I pretty much decided to do because I finally had reached the point, and I'm sure you can appreciate this. You reach a point where you say, you know what? I'm tired of traditional publishing. Yeah. I'm tired of how they treat me. I'm tired of feeling as though I'm not appreciated mm -hmm. and my work has no value. And I'm sure everybody who's never made a billion dollars writing probably feels the same way. But you get to a point where you either decide you're going to do something about it mm -hmm. or you just go on and on and on. Yeah. And I just said, you know what? I think I'm done with traditional publishing. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to control the whole process. As you know, I'm not going to go small press. I'm just going to control the whole process. Yeah. So I figured out what I need to do. You know, you really do need to buy the ISBN and the barcode. Yeah. And you do need to make sure that you have your things set up and formatted and typeset. I should tell you, by the way, my best friend has become Fiverr.com. I'm sure you probably deal um, with that. Have yeah. you dealt with that or have you not? Yeah, yeah. Well, I'll tell well, Fiverr has done some wonderful stuff for me. And okay. so they um, they have gotten me the formatters, the typesetters. I've had people who did covers for me. I have all kinds of other stuff throughout my entire career with the imprint. And so what happened was, is it was very easy for me to just go to Fiverr, find somebody I thought was going to be able to do the job, pay them to do it. And then there's everything on my imprint. And so what happens is, is that I now have the one book that I republished um, back in, um, 2018. Okay. Then we have the audio book of that book, yes. which came out in September of 2020. Okay. And then the latest book, which has just come out, which is the first book that does not have my name on it, Oh, which I find okay. very interesting. Tell me about Yes. Um, the, the latest book that came out just came back out last month and it's called Kyle and Corey and the game store mystery. Okay. And it is a story, really. It's 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 a little bit like the Hardy Boys with technology, if you want to put it that okay. way. Okay, sounds good. 
kids have computers and smart watches and you know smartphones and all this other kind of thing um living in a small southern beach town who are brothers and who solve mysteries together okay which i think is really fun and in this particular mystery um they've already solved one mystery before this book opens okay. but now what's happened here is that they are in the fall uh they're back in school the older boy who's 15 is uh, working toward becoming an engineer like his father. Okay. The younger boy is sports crazy and loves baseball. And what happens is that they start to realize that there's uh, robberies going on in their town. Okay. And nobody knows why in this town where nobody robs anybody, why are there all these robberies? And why does every single robbery seem to include a high-end desktop computer? Okay. Nobody really knows. Right. So... The thing is, is that the boys start looking into it and as usual, things get interesting where they're concerned. So they start to figure it out, especially since the older boy gets his first job working at a local game store. Okay. Now, um, this actually is, like I say, it's the first book published without my name on it. Okay. And it is the beginning, I think, of a series, I hope, right. a series of at least four books and maybe more, depending on what the response actually is. Um, and, um, the second book is already in the works. It's not in pub it's not in production, but it's currently in the writing process. Okay. And we're hoping that that went out by before Christmas of this year. Great. That would be very okay. exciting. Yeah. Um, the author's name is Joe Stevens. Joe Stevens. Okay. Uh, yes. And, um, and so that, that is the first book put out without my name on it, right. but it can, the imprint continues and, Right now, because the new book is out, Kyle and Corey, uh, because the new book is out, we're actually going to also have, I don't know if you can see it. Maybe oh, yeah. not. There you, go. Uh, there you go. Um, we're also in the process of having an audiobook made out of the original text. Okay. So it's going to be very interesting. And that should be out, I think, I'm hoping, before October. That would be very nice if okay. possible. Yeah. And we're very excited. We found a, a wonderful um, narrator to actually do the narration on it. He's very excited about it too. So he sent me the original, the beginning, and we're working on that now. And in that sense, I'm sort of functioning more as an actual publisher because there's so many other things that need to be done in the process of getting a book out. So that's kind of where we are at this particular moment. It's, it's, that's the next thing. The next book after that is going to be the second Kyle and Corey. And then I myself have a bunch of other books which um, really sort of fit more into the category of juvenile or young adult fiction. Okay. In fact, I have one series I'd love to tell you about, which I have not finished yet. I'm in the process of, of working through the next, the f- second draft of the first book. Okay. Um, and it goes back to an interesting story that started really at around 2005. This is back when I was working with my agent in New York. Fine. Again, traditional publishing, right? And I'm no longer working with that agent. But uh, back at that time, she called me and she said, listen, I've got something kind of interesting. There's a company here that wants to actually produce their own fiction, girls fiction series. Okay. And they've never done girls fiction. They've always done like books about crafts and stuff like that. Right. However, they want to do this and they have this idea. And I said, okay, what's the idea? And they said, well, these four girls who are friends they live in a Midwestern town and in an alternate universe, they're princesses. 
And so, um, and she said, so I said, so what do you want me to do with it? She said, I want you to come up with an idea that these people can get so excited about that they're going to sign you. So I started thinking about it and I thought, well, you know, if these girls are princesses in another world, mm. in the other world, they're probably, it's probably in a, they're in a kingdom, right? right? And if they're in a kingdom, then the kingdom, no matter what, has to be a place where they have an economy and the economy has to have something that props it up. Right. So what if this particular kingdom that they are princesses from, what if this particular kingdom is the kingdom where they make the magic mirrors? You know, the ones that tell you the truth all the time, mm. like the one in Snow White, yeah. mirror, mirror yeah. on the wall. Yeah. So what's happening is some very bad people want to take over the kingdom and they are slowly replacing the magic mirrors, not with mirrors that tell you the truth, but with mirrors that tell you what you want to hear. Which oh, when you like it's just about the most damaging thing anybody can ever do, right? Okay. You know, oh, don't ever worry. You don't have to eat less. You don't have to change anything. You look fabulous just the way you are. <laughs> don't be silly. They'll wait for you. You don't have to worry about being on time. All those kind of things. So, and what's yeah. happening is, is that very bad things are happening. And so what our story starts with these four girls who are all living on the same street called Serendipity Lane okay. in this small town. And what happens is they end up together in a, in a thrift shop because they're all about to do a school festival. And the teacher has recommended that this is a place where they can get some fabric for them to make, you know, the tunics and stuff they're going to wear. Right. And so they end up there. And what happens is while they're in the shop, they find something very interesting. What looks like maybe a passport that maybe have, may have fallen out of maybe a board game or something. Okay. But when the girl who picks it up opens the passport, the picture inside is a picture of her. And as soon okay. as she sees the pictures, they all start to just, you know, pass out. And when they wake up, they're in a kingdom called Moonswoggle, where, as it turns out, they are princesses. They're also sisters. Okay. And they're supposed to have died by drowning in a bog many years before. Right. But they have not died. They have been pushed into this other world to live safely there until such time as they're ready to come back. And now they're ready to come back. Okay. And that is the basis for my series, which is going to be called Moon Over Moonswoggle. Okay. And, and that is, that is uh, I'm on book one right now. Right. And that's going to be something that I hope will not be too long in the making. I've, I've been having such a good time with the publishing part okay. of dealing with all this and dealing with Kyle and Corey and their world that it's been a little hard for me to pull myself into my own world and kind of just make that happen. But Well, listen, it, I'm, I'm happy to set you a deadline. What do you reckon? Three days? <laughs> I'll call you with a big pot of coffee in one okay. hand and a bottle of rum in the other. Yeah, definitely. Like two definitely. matchsticks. <laughs> exactly. exactly. Yeah. We'll I, see. I, I did want to come back to something that you said about kind of getting sick of traditional publishing. Yes. So obviously, you know, you had, you know, quite a career in traditional publishing. How did it change from the beginning to the end for you? Okay, are you saying my personal experience? Are you yeah, talking yeah. about? Yeah, I mean, did you, did you, well, actually, I mean, you're going to have observations generally, but mm -hmm. in the time that you were writing in the traditional publishing world, what changes did you see? And what was the kind of the breaking point for you? Um, I should probably tell you that 
from my point of view, I don't feel like I made much of a splash in the publishing world in traditional publishing, okay. basically because I was working at the lowest end of the totem pole. I mean, right. I wasn't John Grisham. I wasn't J.K. Rowling. I had not originated yeah. my own ideas. And so when I started writing my own ideas and self-publishing them, that is when I felt like my career really started to happen. Um, but what I did notice was that as I as I got more toward like 2005 or so, okay. that was when I began to realize that there was a certain amount of panic in the traditional publishing world because the barbarians were at the gates. Right. And what was happening was self-publishing, PO, I'm sorry, print-on-demand, POD publishing yes. Yes. was becoming a big deal. It was actually technologically possible and it was changing everything. You know, Amazon was changing everything for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And so the way that they were creating content and, you know, having what they had had before, that was all starting to go away. And I find that fascinating. People have not stopped caring about reading. They love to read. They do. Yes. But um, the ability now to turn on an audio book or pull it up on your phone and read a Kindle ebook, yeah, yeah. things have just changed just dramatically. And so that's been a very big deal. And so what happened was is the, the market for the kind of contract fiction that I did was starting to dry up in the sense that there simply was not that much out there anymore. Yeah. You know, and it's, I would probably be hard pressed to try to find that kind of stuff if I went looking for it again. Yeah. So I made the decision consciously a couple of years ago, I'm going to publish my own stuff. And by yeah. the way, I'm going to write my own ideas. However terrible they are, I'm going to write them and I'm going to put them out there and see if anybody is interested and we'll yeah. just see what happens. And that's, yeah, that's, that's, an, that's an interesting kind of parallel. So Ros Morris, who I inter um, interviewed in yeah the last episode, um, actually, yes. As we're talking to you, it would be the last but one. Anyway, um, yeah, so she had a, a similar thing when she was ghostwriting. So she sells mm -hmm. 4 million books. And then when Amazing. she goes to a traditional publisher with her own ideas, they're like, oh, okay, well, we don't really want those. And, and I think publishing, I think traditional publishing has got to the point now where because of all the disruption of Amazon and self-publishing, my view is that they can't afford to take any risks. They have to go for something that they truly believe will be a massive hit. I don't disagree with that. I think no. this is the case of the movie business. And I was in the movie business for 12 years. Right. And it's, it's a very interesting thing because I'm told, I don't know this for a fact, but I'm told by people who are now publishing traditionally yes. that um, what happens is when you reach an editor, and they say, oh, yeah, okay, I like your stuff. The first question they want to know is, how big is your presence on Facebook? How many right. Facebook friends do you have? How many people are following you on Twitter? How mm -hmm. big is your email list? It's kind of like they expect a lot out of you. Yeah. Now, I have kind of a sad story about a friend of mine who wrote a wonderful book. And a couple of years ago, I got to know him because he sent me an email. And it was a very polite email saying, I've written this book. I wrote it for my son. It's basically about how to handle money. And okay. I would love if you take a look at it. And I read the email and I was totally unmoved. And then I read it again and I thought, you know, this is worth it. So I wrote him back. He sent me the book. We became friends. I gave him a five-star review. He loved it. And what happened was that he spent a lot of time and a lot of money trying to figure out the marketing piece of it and sold it up, ended up selling a bunch of books on Amazon and being mm -hmm. asked 
translate his book into different languages and it was wonderful. And then a major publisher came to him, big publisher. Okay. And um, he said, yeah, I'm happy to meet with you. I'll talk with you. That's great. So he went and he literally met with them. Right. And what happened was they basically said, um, we'd like to republish this book. We think we can do something with it. We'd like right. to re-edit it and republish it. And he said, okay, so what are you thinking about? And they said, well, we'd like to give you an advance of, you know, X. And he said, no, I think I sort of want X plus about a quarter of a million dollars. And he ended up getting the money. Wow. Yes. Now, very interesting. So they re-edited it okay. and they republished it. And I recently spoke to him a couple of months ago. And I said, you know, how are things going with the book? This is so exciting. He said, I feel like the groom that was left at the altar. They haven't been in touch with me since the book came out. They're not publicizing anything. They're not doing anything with it. I've made myself available to them to do whatever publicity they want. Yeah. I'm happy to go out there and help them. But the main thing really here is the sense that these people acquire books, you know, and then they just don't care enough or don't are not smart enough to know what to do with them. Yeah. Do you remember, what was it, the... Um, the Celestian Prophecy. This yes. is around 1999. Yeah. Yeah, 1999, Celestian Prophecy was self-published at a time when you still had to, you know, publish and warehouse and all that other kind of thing. Right. They sold a lot of copies. I think yeah. something like Warner Books took them over and they made the book like a 2 million copy bestseller. Yeah. And that's great. But the thing is, is that they said, okay, we see something in this book and we want to do something with it. Yeah. The point is, is that as far as we can figure out with the book that they picked up from my friend, they just wanted the title in their catalog. I don't know what other possible reason they could have had because they weren't willing to do anything with it. That's the question. So yeah. if you can't make it better than it, what it was, why shell out all that money? Why, you know, it makes no sense. The, the, you see this in Hollywood though. You see them buying a property. And I know. Not knowing what to do with it. And it almost feels like we want, how can I phrase this? We want to have this so nobody else gets it. We just want to sit on it. Yep. In Until fact, there's the, yeah. The, it's an interesting thing because the stuff that goes on in Hollywood is so insane. Mm. I was there for 12 years and there is no sanity and there's very little intelligence in the film. <laughs> no matter what anybody tells you, you know, and when I see movies today, it's extremely clear. So, but I should tell you that the one of the things that's very interesting is there is kind of a saying that when one person is fired from a studio head position, yeah. someone else will come in, of course, to replace him. And what will happen is the person who replaces him cannot make any of the properties that he already has under contract because if he does and that thing is a hit, then the other person who just got fired is going to get the credit for it and he's going to get any blame, right? Uh -huh. okay. So... It's, it's really sort of an interesting thing. It's like, it's hard to imagine that anybody could be that stupid. But, you know, uh, William Goldman, who wrote a marvelous, two marvelous books about the film industry, yeah. uh, wrote a thing talking about how the, he had dealt with The Princess Bride. At one point, a guy had green-lighted it at a studio. Yeah. And that weekend, he was fired from his job. And yeah. when he came back, when the new guy came in on Monday, he said, I'm not making that. But we love it, but it's great. No, we're not making it. We're not going to. 
and I'm not selling it to another studio. They tried another, they tried whatever, didn't work. Mm-hmm. So finally, William Goldman bought it back. He's just like, you know what? I'm done with you. I will pay for it with my own money. I want my own screenplay back. Okay. And he, got, he, bought, he actually bought the book and he held on to it. And then eventually he had the chance to make it, which, and they didn't think it was ever going to get made because it was listed as one of like the top 10 best screenplays that never got made in Hollywood. Right. But, but Hollywood does this endlessly. They do stupid things. Sure. They don't care about people's careers. They don't care about people full stop. And um, people's lives suffer as a result of it. And it's, mm. I got out of it because I had wanted to be in the film industry because I felt that making good movies mattered. Yes. And at this point, it's been such a long time since I've seen a good movie that it almost doesn't matter. I mean, the last truly wonderful movie I saw was Saving Mr. Banks in 2013. Okay. Yes, the the movie about Walt Disney and the uh, P.L. Travers, the woman who wrote Mary Poppins. And um, I went to see it by myself in the theater. And at the end, people are audibly sobbing around me. I can hear them oh. crying their eyes out. And I'm thinking, oh, this is so great. Oscar time comes, one nomination, oh. one nomination. Not the screenplay, not the actors, not the director, not the movie, nothing. One nomination and they didn't win. I said, I'm done. No more watching, no more listening, not interested, not interested. Yeah. Yeah. You know, if I want to see a movie, I watch something very old because they're great yeah. movies. Yeah. But it's very frustrating for me also because I learned to tell stories in the film business and there does not appear to be a film business right now to tell any stories in yeah. and that is i find i find it to be very discouraging personally i'm, I'm wondering if, if if not netflix so much but i've noticed that amazon prime they've mm-hmm. got lots of like indie films and i've yes. found some real gems on amazon prime that obviously haven't made it to netflix um so really just lovely, introspective, small films that I've really, I've really kind of connected with. I did want to, um, just going back to, to traditional publishing, um, when I was doing my master's degree, they asked us to read The Merchants of Culture. Mm-hmm. And uh, I can't remember who it's by, but um, it's very, very depressing. And... <laughs> <laughs> But it's it's about the about the traditional traditional publishing industry, mm-hmm. and there is one particular um, graph that shows you the earnings of a particular book and the sales of when the movie was about to come out, just after the movie came out, and then a couple of years later, and then when you look at that compared to the royalty that the author was getting, I mean it's just it's just sad. And, yep. and I think now when you see that a reader can um, charge $2.99 and get 70%, I mean, the math, I mean, if the author is prepared to do as much work as, let's face it, they're going to have to do in the traditional publishing industry. Because as you say, they're not doing anything or hardly anything anymore. Why not take that 70%? Well, You'd think so. You'd yeah. think, but I mean, the thing is, they think that they're being very generous, giving you 15%. Mm. You know, and when I talk to authors about this and they say, oh, I want traditional publishing. I, mostly what they want it for is they want the, I don't want to say the stigma. That's the wrong thing to say, but I think you know what I mean. They want the status of a yeah. traditional. Oh, yeah, yeah. And I think it is validation because if, if I yes, talk to somebody, you know, at a party and they say, 
well, before I became a book coach, it was, what do you do? I'm a writer. What do you write? It's like, yeah, have you had anything published? Yes. Yes, they say, but traditionally or self-published. Now, they actually ask you that question. That's so yeah, fascinating. All the time. I don't get asked that question. I don't get asked that question. Okay. You know, I, I maybe it's because I can tell them, yes, I've been traditionally published. Yes. Maybe they once you've been done it once, it should probably be enough. But yes, I haven't had that conversation with anyone. That's just that's very interesting. Mm. That really and maybe it's a British thing. Maybe it is. I mean, there's the, a little bit more literacy on that side. Understandably, yeah. it's yeah. It's, it's, so it's maybe, great. Maybe we're just a bit more suspicious. <laughs> you know what? I don't blame you for being suspicious. <laughs> the main thing for me, and one of the things I, I still consider something of a tragedy, is that what I think may be the best book I've ever written, which was a book about the JFK assassination called Forward to Camelot, okay. has never, ever found its audience. And what's heartbreaking about that is I wrote it, published it, uh, we republished it in 2013 to take yes. advantage of the 50th anniversary. Yeah. We're coming up now on the 60th anniversary of the assassination. And it is a, it's one of those stories that people tell me I was reading all night. I couldn't stop. I couldn't stop. You know, I wasn't doing anything. Yeah. I just had to finish this book. And then I read about something like, you know, Stephen King writes 112263 and it becomes an automatic bestseller. And it's just very frustrating because mm. it's, it's kind of hard. What, what do you do? If you are not the kind of person who can afford to set aside a hundred thousand yeah. dollars to spend on publicizing your book, yeah. how do you yeah. handle that? And and you know my my solution is to try to talk to as many people like you as possible, mm -hmm. have those conversations, and kind of just let people know I'm there, I'm out yeah. there, and yeah. you know it's it's worth looking at my book. But yeah. because a lot of it is is so much about luck, luck and timing nowadays. Absolutely. Um, Absolutely, and I think it always has been, but. I think with that added pressure of traditional publishing and Hollywood, because we brought it up, um, they need to be sure of a surefire hit. Except they never are. That's well, the part no. that's bad. Yeah, yeah. And as you say, it's a, I don't want to trash talk the traditional publishing, but I if it's anything okay. like Hollywood, then it's full of idiots. Yeah, I don't, I don't blame you. For, I mean, that's the, I, the people that I've dealt with in traditional publishing are not rocket scientists. Tell me just, right now. Yeah, how just out of interest. Yes. Um, how many um, are white men that you in Hollywood or in, in traditional publishing? Oh, um, not as many as you might think. Okay. Many, good. many of them are women. Many okay. of them are women, and um, the others that I've dealt with. To be honest with you, the people I've dealt with in traditional publishing who happen to be men. Mm -hmm. are genuinely nice men. I, I have had very few bad experiences with people who are men in traditional publishing. Now, Hollywood, that's a completely different matter altogether. Yes. Totally imagine. different matter. And, and the thing is, I was there in the 80s. And in the right. 80s, pretty much anything that you, any way that you wanted to treat women was perfectly okay. Right. If you didn't get arrested for it, you were pretty much okay. So okay. it was a very, very sad state of affairs. It yeah. still is when you think about it. But yeah, it's, it's, um, I don't think this has anything to do with any kind of a line involving gender or race mm -hmm. or anything like that. I think this is very much a matter of an attitude that you as any kind of person can pick up because I noticed that when I, the longer I personally was in Hollywood and I'm a woman, 
-hmm. The longer I was there, the less I liked myself because you began to get very cynical. Mm -hmm. You know, I, what I did have in the agency that I worked in, I had the power to say no to somebody. And I said no regularly. Okay. And there came a point where I just didn't like it. I was looking at material that was mostly bad, right. that it was really, really hard to find really good stuff. And um, one story I got to tell you, you're going to love this. There's one woman who sent us a script and it was a very good script. Okay. It really was. It was well-written. It was funny. It was literate. Uh, it was a romantic comedy and I could see something good happening here. And I called her and I said, I read your script and I really enjoyed it. It happened to start with a, uh, a, a man in a bar who told women this, he asked women this trivia question. Okay. And if they could answer the trivia question, then he would go forward with the relationship. <laughs> and the trivia question, I got it. It's a sports question. So I got to mention it. Right. The sports question was in the 1969 world series, um, who was the, um, who was the runner who scored the winning run for the New York Mets in the fifth game of the world series? Right. And the answer, because I'm a, I was a Met fan at the time, was Rod Keneal. Except I said to her, listen, that's a great question that you ask. I'm a Met fan. It's wonderful. I said, but there's a problem. Okay. It's not accurate. She said, what's wrong with it? I said, it wasn't the fifth game. It was the fourth game. Right. And I told her this. And I said, look it up. I promise you that I'm right. And what's interesting about all this was is that she never took my calls again. I was offering her, I was offering her agency representation okay. and because I had corrected her on something that was very clearly a factual mistake, yeah. she didn't want anything to do with me. I thought that was hilarious. Wow. I mean, <laughs> you know, I mean, I've come across a couple of writers who've taken feedback. Um, Not very well, I'm sure. Well, you know, I mean, I give thorough feedback, but it's compassionate. Mm -hmm. And I have seen a few writers uh, struggle. Let's be candle. Yeah, candid here. Yeah. 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 Um, it's I'm, not I'm, always easy to hear that about I, your baby. Yeah. I mean, I haven't had anyone like, like really have to go toe to toe with anybody, uh, which I'm is good because I'm not confrontational. But, um, and I, I really feel for them because I've had feedback. I've had one star reviews of books and it's very easy to carry that around with you. And if you're already suffering from imposter syndrome, that that's oh, yeah. the stuff that you hold on to and it sticks to you and, and it just makes everything 10 times worse. So, you know, you I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't sound like you went to this woman berating her for making, you know, no, I was I was simply basically saying you really want to just change this word in your script yeah, yeah. and it's going to make everything better. Exactly. You know, other than that, it's it's really good and I enjoyed it and it's wonderful and I yeah. like what you did with the characters and and she didn't want to hear from me again. That was that. Wow. So I wonder if she ever got representation because I never did see that film in the movies. So there you are. Chances what can I tell she you? Didn't. Yeah. <laughs> no, I, I got a lot of that, I should tell you. I got a lot of that with Forward to Camelot. But I got a lot of it. I, the people who read it mostly do not know enough about the assassination to be able to say this right. is wrong, whatever. And we were absolutely 
dogged about making sure that the history was correct. Yeah. I was very, very happy that we had the chance to re-edit the book in 2013 because we were able to correct a couple of mistakes that had crept in. I was very happy about that. But the interesting thing is I get into more fights with people who are going to say to me, I can't believe that you honestly think that Oswald didn't do it. What kind of an idiot are you? And you can't really have conversations with people like that mm. at some point or another. It's kind of like you either accept the premise of the book or you don't. Yeah. And if you don't, that's fine. But we're giving you something here that's something of an alternative history and you can take it and go with it or not. Yeah. Yeah. You know, now, now, by contrast, the person I was married to at the time, I happened to actually meet at a JFK symposium about this okay. assassination. That's an interesting place to meet men, I got to tell you. <laughs> I'm just I'm just making a note about that. No, I'm happily married. Happily married. What I was gonna say was is that it's a great place to meet men because all of their wives have divorced them because this is all they ever think about or talk about. They tend to be smarter than a lot of people. They've done a lot of research, they do a lot of reading, and so they have a lot to say about the whole topic. So he the, the guy that I met happened to be one of them and I ended up marrying him. So he saw the final manuscript and when he read one of the more um sort of touching, I think, moments in the story. I was literally watching him as he's reading the scene that I've just written. And I walk past him and he's crying. Oh. And I went, oh, that works. That's good. I'm so glad. <laughs> and I've had people since tell me that they got to that part in the story and they're crying their eyes out. And I'm thinking, this is good. This works. Yeah, yeah. But like I say, never found its audience. Never. I wish that it had. It, it, it was important to me to write it. But I'd really like to know that somebody was out there reading it, you know, and which is the reason that maybe one of my favorite things to do is collect stories about successful writers, Yes. which may sound like it's defensive, no, but no. the stories about like the publication of Gone with the Wind is one of my favorite stories of all yes. time. Wow. Yes. 50,000 copies sold in one day. Wow. That's amazing. Yeah. You know, and a friend of mine in California years ago told me that he had a letter in his family, I don't know what you want to call it, his family sort of archives, a letter from um, Margaret Mitchell's father, who was a relative, a distant relative of theirs, who had written to everyone he knew in the country who he was related to and said, Peggy has written a book and they've given her this advance for it and she's worried it's not going to sell 5,000 copies and we'd be very grateful if you'd buy a copy to help support her. Okay. And it was gone with the wind. I love that. I think that's one of the great yes. things I've ever heard in my yes. life. Do you know, I'm, I was very surprised. So it's junk food day today. Yeah. And I was doing a bit of research because I was like, okay, what like a junk books? Ooh, yeah. And obviously like Fifty Shades came up and things like that. But I was very shocked to see um, Gone with the Wind. It's a junk book? Well, I mean, I think it was on a list of trashiest books. And I was like, really? I mean, I I wonder if the book, I've never read it, okay? I've only seen the movie. Wow. I've seen the movie many times. Um, so I think I'd had that automatic, well, the book's, the movie's good. Well, I enjoy the movie. So the book so must the book, be good. You know, I find this interesting. I I read the book when I was 10 years old. Okay. And I read it at a time in my life when I was being bullied every day. So it was a very difficult time in my life. I fell so in love with this book that I got to the point where I memorized whole passages of it. It is to this day one of my favorite books of all time. 
It is a great read, a great read. If you haven't read it, I promise you, it is better than the movie, way better than the movie, and well worth your time. And it is hard to believe that anybody could describe it as a junk read. I mean, right. I can imagine other books that I loved that would be considered junk reads. Yeah. But that would not be one of them. That okay. is, it is also spectacularly true and close to, to historically, historically close because she was very concerned about getting the history right. So she did a lot of research to make sure that everything she said was correct. Yeah. And to this day, they have only found one mistake in the novel. And that is that the Fayetteville Academy, where Scarlett supposedly finished her education, mm -hmm. uh, they called it the Fayetteville Academy for Girls. But in fact, it was co-ed. That's the only mistake they ever found in the book. Wow. So that should tell you something. It's, it's, I promise you, it's worth your time, Stuart. It's really, <laughs> really worth your time. And I hope you'll read it and let me know what think of it because it's yeah it's worth it it is i'm going to put and, it on my my tbr list please. and also i'm working yes. with an author at the moment who um do you know i'm not going to give the book title away but is writing a book set in the world of dressage oh cool. so i'm going to let her know about racing hearts <laughs> racing hearts is about uh it's about thoroughbred racing okay the but book. her dog her dog the her original horse, in the original book that I wrote is being retrained. Okay, the, the book that I wrote that I was telling you about, my very first book that I ever wrote, was for a series called Blue Ribbon. Blue Ribbon. And it was called, yes, and it was called, what was it called? I can actually go back here and look it up. Um, I can't remember the, uh, the main event. It was called The, the main, main event. event. Yes, okay. and it's, it's about girls training for Olympic dressage with their horses and all kinds of other stuff. So there's a lot of stuff in there that was very true to life, I think, at the time. Brilliant. Yes, and well, I know she listens and watches this pod, this uh, podcast, so I oh, will. Good. But I'll give her a nudge anyway, and just see. Yeah, I'm I'm very interested to see because I think things set in those worlds are so interesting. And there's there used to be a lot of stuff written about it, but there is not as much written about it today. And it's yeah. fun to do. It is. So Absolutely. listen, Susan, we could probably do another six to eight hours. Um, Anytime you're ready, Susan. Yeah, ready. yeah. Well, I was sitting here thinking. <laughs> This is a guest that I want to come back. So, I would love um, to come back. So what I will say is, obviously, good luck with your releases. Um, Thank you. Very good luck with, obviously, you know, Joe's book. Is it Kyle, Kyle and Corey? Kyle and Corey and the Game Store Mystery. Yes, Brilliant. thank you. Um, yes. So are there any words that you would, of advice that you would give to people apart from don't write a book in three days? <laughs> Or do write a book in three days. Rocky True. was written in three yeah. days. Rocky was written in three days. It worked out okay for Sylvester yeah, Stallone. Exactly. So I, I would say this. I, I have would love to say something original and fresh that no one has ever heard before. Yeah. But the one thing I would say that I think is very critical is if you have any urge whatsoever to write, then mm. write. Don't worry about yeah. whether it's any good. Don't worry about anything else. And don't stop believing that you have value just because you may have written something that does not at the moment have value. Yes. Because you know what? There's always a way of getting better. Yes. And then there's someone like you, Stuart, who can actually coach them and help them to become better at what they do. So hey. we're going to do it with, I'll do it thoroughly, but I'll do it with <laughs> I know you will. I know you will. In fact, I can think of a couple of things of mine I need in touch with you about for you to take a look at and be very sweet and gentle about it Brilliant. okay you're on good okay, susan thank you again it's been a pleasure my pleasure i've enjoyed it and i'll come back anytime you say i've had so much fun fantastic you're on
All right, take care. Bye. Bye.